Okay, so welcome to episode three of the iCare Education podcast. Um, we've got two very special guests this week. We have Jay Sri Basani, who is a dispensing optician and CET provider and ABDO practical examiner. And we also have Dan Williams, who is the owner of Visualized Training and Consultancy. Um, Dan has been on a mission um, to raise the awareness of low vision and to offer support to a lot of people within the community and uh, just to raise the profile of low vision among optics as well. So it's great to have them both on. Uh, so welcome to the Eye Care Education podcast, Jay Shree and Dan. Thank you. Thank so, you. You're welcome. So start off first of all then, we'll, we'll, we'll find a bit out a bit more about yourself. So if we start with you, Jay Shree, so could you tell us how did you get into optics and, and what got you to the point where you are today? Yeah, sure. So I started optics because uh, basically, one of my aunties was an optician, uh, optometrist actually, not an optician. Mm-hmm. And um, at that time, I was really keen on becoming a pharmacist because my brother was a pharmacist. Uh, and I went to an open day at the university, and it was a really warm day. And I went to the chemistry lab, and uh, I nearly fainted with all the smells. So I just thought, oh no, this is not for me. Um, so, and on that, on a, a day after that, we went to Manchester University and went into the optometry side of things, and I thought this is cool, I like yeah. this, all this different type of kit, and you know, I just thought it was more, more what I wanted to do, so I applied for everything in optics right the way through, from optometry right the way through to, you know, orthoptists, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, decided in the end to go for dispensing optician, really, uh, and at that time, uh, jobs were plentiful, but I qualified in 1989, where, the, where we had deregulation, so it was a case of, right, what do you do now? Yeah. Uh, and uh, they said, oh, can you drive? And I said, not yet. And they said, if you pass your test, then you can, you can, you can become a contact lens trainee. Okay. So I passed my test, and therefore got my contact lens qualification as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then from there, we've just sort of uh, moved on, and uh, I worked for the Institute of Optometry, which was a, a great uh, sort of place to work, research, charity, mm-hmm. and looking after patients, uh, you know, with additional needs, if you like. And that in itself was a good ground base, if you like. From where we were you know, previously working in practice. Yeah. Um, the examining has, abdo examining and abdo practice visits has been something that I've done for a long time and I thoroughly enjoy it. Mm-hmm. You get to meet so many different people across the sector, you know, independence, multiples, uh, yeah. academia, all of that side of things. And in fact, the learning happens not only when you're, when you're uh, you know, doing exams, but also afterwards when you're listening to people afterwards, right? When you're talking to people afterwards and listening to what's going on in their lives and what's what's happening you know in their world if you like so that's, yeah, that's a, a good sort of way to think about it i think you've done you similarly uh, uh, you know doing that aren't you yeah yeah i mean I, i've literally just been signed up so i got signed up during the the last winter exams um yeah but yeah i mean i, I started um a couple of years ago in, in my training but i found it really really interesting and beneficial to me as as a professional as well because it, it forced me to go over stuff that I'd perhaps forgotten or I'd, you know, not reviewed as much in practice. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's a really good, I'd definitely recommend anyone out there to, to have a go at it, because um, it yeah. it's definitely beneficial. Yeah. And then part, 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 part also what I do is I'm a session optician at the RNIB, and that is mm-hmm. uh, basically the clinics there, we look after people, we have clinics for people with learning disabilities, mm-hmm. uh, and um, you know, it's a case of um, and learning difficulties as well, 
and obviously the, the, the people with sight impairment that work at the RMIB. So yeah. again, that stretches the old mental elastic. You know, you, you, mm -hmm. you get a patient who, who has different challenges or different, different requests, if you like, and you have to think slightly outside the box. So that keeps me a bit more engaged in terms of what I'm doing. Yeah. And uh, from that, I went to a show called Sight Village. Mm -hmm. Sight Village is a tech show, actually, yeah. for all the new type of tech that's available for people with visual impairment. And anybody can go to that. And there I met Dan. Mm -hmm. uh, and Dan, you know, was there and he does uh, visual impairment training. And I went onto the workshop there. And afterwards, I just sort of thought to myself on the way home, I thought, well, actually, why are we not signposting patients to mm -hmm. the services that need to be serviced, you know, so sent to? Why, why is this not happening? Yeah. Uh, and I got in touch with Dan and said, really, you need to try and get this training DT accredited. Because only then will you get engagement from the optometry uh, sector yeah. you know um, low vision isn't classed as a very sort of cool subject you know the, there are people who love it and, and have a passion for it but generally you know when we actually do the, the road shows that we do if you ask people how many people are here for the CT points you know 80 hands will go up mm. and how many people are here for the low vision five six initially so you know yeah. people are truthful yeah I, I tend um, to find that I mean as a CT topic because we, we always make sure that we include low vision workshop as part of our roadshows. Um, we always tend to find that low vision as a topic is, it's a, it's a great topic to discuss um, because there's so many layers to it. Um, so from um, a pathology point of view, there's a lot of interest in pathology. So, you know, th there's a lot to learn from that aspect, but there's also a lot to learn from a dispensing side with low vision aids, um, as well as understanding how it actually affects the patient. So obviously mm. we'll, we'll touch on that a bit more with Dan in a moment as well. But yeah, just yeah. learning about how it actually affects a patient's life and, and discussing that kind of thing, I think that yeah. that side of it gets people a bit more involved as well. Yeah, and that's what the Roadshow has been hopefully mm -hmm. engaging with, yeah. to try and actually say that, you know, this, this is a day-to-day -day reality for people. This is not mm -hmm. something that you just, you know, try. You know, you try on the sim specs in, the, in, in that situation. And yeah, it's not easy and comfortable to look at the tube map, but actually this is the reality for people. Yeah. And that's really what hit home to me. Um, and that's why I decided that this was something I really want to pursue and do. And so, you know, that's what we've been doing, really. Yeah, definitely. And it's been, it's been a great success as well, hasn't it? Um, and you've, you've managed to reach a huge portion of, of the industry already. Um, yeah. But there's, there's a lot more out there, isn't there? Really? There's a lot more people. Oh, yeah, there's a lot more out there. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing is also to engage the sight loss charities who maybe have been trying to engage with optometrists and opticians, dispensing opticians, but the difficulty is that they don't know how to do that. They don't know the vehicle, they don't know how to do it. So again, we've done some work with that. We've done a video where you know people can look at that, opticians, optometrists, anybody in the eye care sector of how they can engage better with, um, with, with the charities, with the sight loss charities. Yeah, definitely. And that's, and that's a big part of the support network, isn't it? And I think we can often overlook that in practice um, where where we you know if if a low vision de um, condition is detected, it's normally referred on to a, um, an ophthalmologist, etc., or referred on. But having those people come back in practice and being able to, to provide a support network, information mm -hmm. about benefits and in work benefits and all that kind of stuff, as as well as low vision aids, is is a bigger part of supporting a low vision patient mm -hmm. as as magnifiers and you know advice about yeah. lighting, etc. Yeah, and the other thing is, Stuart, that what we don't realise is that low vision patients are sitting right in front of us in our practices. Yeah. They could be people we're working with, they could be people mm -hmm. of our family or our friends who we've not really 
recognised or, yeah. or seen as low vision patients. And really, they do things in certain ways, but you don't know why they do things in certain ways. And that's because they have a vision impairment, which they may not have really wanted mm -hmm. to tell you about. But if you look again, freshly, at how they do things, then you think, oh, that's why. Yeah. You know, yeah. This is the reason. When, and if you're bold enough to ask them and say, is this the reason? They'll say yes. Yeah. So it actually comes home, if you like, in that sense that you can actually put it in your own practice. You know, people working with you, may, you may think, oh, this is the way they do it. There is a reason for that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think one of the biggest um, conditions that we come across in practice is AMD. Um, mm. it, you know, it, it's very, it's the most common low vision condition. Um, but it's something that we do see a lot in practice. And it's probably something that people don't realize that they can provide a lot more support that they're able to because they don't sell low vision aids. There's still a lot of advice and a lot of support they can give to that patient. Um, mm. But like I say, I think, I think a lot of people don't, in their, in their minds, they're not actively low vision practitioners. They're not actively um, providing low vision service in practice because they're not selling low vision aids, um, you know, specific aids. But there's so much advice and there's so many things you can give to patients to help them. Um, that, that do make a big difference. So, yeah, it's a, it's a lot more... I, th I think the non-optical stuff, Stuart, is the important thing. The non-optical, yeah. the holistic stuff, the, the information mm -hmm. is the key stuff. And as a dispensing optician, that's what we do. We communicate with people on a daily basis. So why, why wouldn't we do that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we, we've done a few different low vision workshops where we've focused on um, non-optical low vision aids. And some of the suggestions that we get are fantastic. And some of the little... They're almost like life hacks, aren't they? Some of the little hints and tips that you can give to people just to make certain tasks easier. Um, and what, one of the best ones we had was uh, someone had a low vision relative. I think, I think they had AMD. Um, mm -hmm. But they, they didn't want to go out to family meals because they struggled to see the food on their plate. They were always reluctant to go out to a family meal because they felt that they'd be holding everyone up, they'd be the last to finish their food and everyone would be waiting for them before they could order the next course, etc. So that sort of kept them from interacting with their family and stuff like that. Um, yeah. So what they did was they used to just take their own, like a different coloured plate to the restaurant and, and ask the restaurant to serve it on a, you know, a plate that had better contrast for that patient. Um, mm. and, it, and it enabled that patient to, to enjoy family meals, to go out and, mm. and interact and take mm. away that whole isolation aspect of mm. low vision as well, which was fantastic. But like you say, you, you think of magnifiers and you know electronic low vision aids and all these all these different things which are fantastic and they can make a real difference to patients lives but mm. something as simple as a different colored plate a different colored chopping board you know um all sorts of things like that um and another one we had which was really interesting was uh, a low vision patient who had different shaped buttons sewn into different yeah, outfits. The bump bumps, yeah. yeah um in, into his clothes so he'd, he'd have like different shaped buttons sewed into his clothes so he could yeah. feel through his wardrobe and he knew that that shaped button shirt went with that shaped button trousers. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, it's, it's exactly. So simple, simple things like bun ponds and, 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 you know, that sort of thing can make a massive difference. It can yeah. keep somebody safe when they're cooking, for example. Yeah, you know, definitely. That, definitely. You know, because you, you can put a little bump on of when, when, the, when the cooker's on, when the cooker's off. Yeah. Uh, and it means that people are living independently and mm -hmm. as they want to live. So that's, that's the important thing. It's empowering people. To yeah, live. definitely. That's the key thing. Definitely, definitely. I think the biggest... something, something that Dan does quite nicely, actually. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. So let's have a little chat with Dan then. So, do you want to tell us about your journey then, Dan? How how did you sort of start out in optics, and and at what point did you did you want to have you know get into CET and stuff like that and make a difference in low vision? 
You just need to un unmute your microphone, Dan. There we go. Can you hear me now? We can hear you. Yeah. <laughs> we can hear okay. You. So, um, yeah, so I, I um, basically uh, got into, I think I'll start at the beginning, really. So yeah. I was diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa at the age of eight, um, which retinitis pigmentosa is basically a gradual loss of vision, starting at the periphery um, and moving its way in. Um, and I um, went to a mainstream school um, and you know, did all my qualifications, etc., um, And it didn't really become a reality to me. Um, I just thought that when I was eight years old, I'd just have to wear some glasses and sit in the front of the class and everything would be fine. I didn't really understand really much about the condition. My mum didn't really understand much about the condition either because no one had really told us and explained it to us about the severity of, of what it is, really. Um, and I think that we'd had appointments with optometrists or phoptists, you know, uh, ophthalmologists, dispensing opticians, and I really didn't understand what I had um, until it became a reality for me at the age of 16 when I was started to apply thinking about, you know, transitioning from school to college and what do I want to do for a career. Yeah. And my career that I wanted to go into was to be a police officer um, and then it become a reality to me that actually you, you can't be a police officer if you've not got 2020 vision. Yeah. Um, and, you know, no one really had told me anything like this until I'd researched it and all this mm -hmm. type of stuff. So um, when I realized that that wasn't going to be for me and I had a condition that was progressive and I was going to go blind eventually, um, and I started to research it all myself and understand the condition and the pathology and all of this type of stuff, um, that's when it really become a reality. Um, for me that my life wasn't going to be the same as everybody else yeah. um, and you know at that time when everyone's leaving school they're looking at getting mopeds they're looking at driving mm -hmm. they're looking at careers um, I sort of thought to myself what am I going to do next because I didn't really know what what to do as a blind person I didn't think that you know I could get a job as a yeah. blind person because I never met any other blind people and I thought I was the only one in the world that was blind um, so I, I um, with that, I got very, very down and depressed and sort of um, didn't know what to do or where to go next for help and support. Mm -hmm. um, no one had ever really told me about anything in terms of support services. Um, and, I, and I went and I got to the point where I just, you know, turned to alcohol, drugs um, and tried to commit suicide, basically, oh, wow. because I felt so emotional and sort of thought well who would want to employ a blind person marry a blind person um and and um how can a blind person live in this world that is surrounded by people that can see yeah, um yeah. bearing in mind that i thought i was the only one in the world that couldn't see because no one else i've never met any other blind people before yeah. and all the people that i knew was people like stevie wonder on tv you know yeah wow i think it's was I mean, like I say, at that stage in your life, that is the stage where you're, you're most optimistic, isn't it? That kind of leaving school, you know, you're planning your future, you're planning what you want to do. So to have that kind of reality hit home at that age must have been, must have been really awful, really. Yeah, it was really awful. And, um, and I think so, so from there, I sort of, I've had some counselling and I didn't really find the counselling work because I felt that they didn't really understand what was going on. Um, and then someone told me about this college in Hereford, which was called the Royal National College for the Blind. And 
I think without that college, I don't know if I don't think I would be here today because that college changed my life. Um, it allowed me to re I went there first of all for an open day and I seen loads of blind people with dogs and canes and I was like, oh my God, this is the world that could yeah. be me and my life. And then I spoke to people and I realized that, you know, there were blind people out there that were barristers, lawyers, mm -hmm. business people, um, all studying different things to go on to different things, personal trainers, massage therapists, etc. Mm -hmm. And it opened up my world to speaking to other people to realize that there's so much you can do. Um, you just have to do things in a different way just because you can't see. Yeah. And um, I sort of thought, wow, this is amazing. You know, and, and I think initially I sort of was quite scared and reluctant. But once I engaged and realized that people can do things just because they can't see, you know, just because they don't have sight, mm -hmm. they can still have vision. And I yeah. think they're two different things yeah. um, in my mind. Um, and I think that being having a vision impairment has allowed me to be very resilient, very much more determined, mm -hmm. overcoming adversity and turning that negative into a positive. And I don't think I'd have it any other way now because it's made me who I am. And it's also made me, um, you know, I can get paid effectively to talk to people about my blindness, which is amazing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So it's amazing how you have sort of <laughs> taken all the positives out of it. Um, mm. I mean, when, when you initially went to that college, did you have anything in mind that you wanted to do in terms of a career or anything? Or was it just a case of going and seeing what was available and, and what was actually possible? No, I think I sort of, so I think I, I just sort of went in there. I knew that I, I, I was quite entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. um, I knew that business was something I was interested in. Um, I wanted to maybe, and I, I knew that social work was also interesting to me. I wanted to help other people. Um, and sort of when I studied business studies, um, health and social care and um, sociology. And so that was sort of my, where I was going to go. And then being at the college for two years and being with other people who had visual impairment, I just realized that there was a huge lack of awareness around the general mm -hmm. public. So I would take friends out that had, um, you know, were sort of blinder than me as it were yeah. um, at the time. And I would guide them and take them out. And I realized that people started talking to me and rather than them. Mm -hmm. And it was like, you know, talking through me to them and all this type of stuff in supermarkets. And, and when we'd go out to pubs and stuff, people would interact with me rather than them because they would see that they were sort of more blinder and whatever it was. And I sort of thought, why is this? You know, there's a whole lack of education. People are scared. They don't know what to do. They think they're going to offend. So they don't interact yeah. and all this type of stuff. Um, and with that, I um, just felt like I need to educate the world and change the world perception. So I then went on to um, university and studied rehabilitation with people with visual impairment um, to know how, so teaching people how to use a white cane, teaching people how to be independent in the home, all of this type of stuff so that people, um, and that sort of give, give me the qualification of the rehabilitation assistant. Uh, which I did for a year. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I realized that then it became a reality for me when I did a work placement in social services that I didn't really want to work for social services. Um, I wanted to be more working with the wider world to make them more aware of visual impairment so that blind people, when they're out and about, just get a good service, really, and people yeah. understand and people don't start talking to the person and they talk to the, the individual. Yeah. Um, and so I then sort of took steps to... Um, uh, first of all, my mum was a single parent. She brought me up and she was a hairdresser and she wanted to set up a business. And I said, well, why can't you? And she had the perception that you have to be wealthy to set up a business. Yeah. And 
I said, no, you don't have to be wealthy, mum. Let's just do it. You know, so I found some money and I got some grants and mm-hmm. we set and I set her up as in a hairdressing salon in Bath, where I was from originally. Um, and um, yeah. Wow. Excellent. So what, what made you take that step into into optics? Um, yeah, so then I, what I did then is I sort of, um, so I ran my, well, I ran my own business now for six years, delivering a visual impairment awareness training to organizations, um, teach people how to guide, how to communicate effectively with blind people, that type mm-hmm. of stuff, and making sure the customer experience is um, a lot more satisfactory with people that can't mm-hmm. see very well. Um, I also do sort of workplace assessment. So if someone's struggling in the workplace, um, I do workplace assessments um, to make sure that they get the right equipment and the right support in the workplace um, and that type of thing. Um, and what got me into optics really was Jay Sheree and mm-hmm. Peter Black, where um, Jay Sheree come along to one of the training sessions and she sort of went away and said, you know, opticians should know all this type of stuff. And why don't we know this? And let's get it accredited and let's get moving with this. So mm-hmm. sort of that's sort of how it, how it happened, really. It happened by accident. Um, but it's been really, really useful. And mm-hmm. I suppose I didn't, I, I sort of assume, as many people do, that an op person that deals with eyes should, should, have, should know all this already. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I didn't, I didn't think that, that, I didn't really realize there was a knowledge gap until I had come into the world of optics and CET mm-hmm. to realize that a lot of people don't know about the local site of charity. They've never been there. They've never referred to the local charity. They've never referred to social services. Yeah. Um, I think that optometrists, dispensing opticians, you know, ophthalmologists, very good at referring into ophthalmology and looking at pathology, but actually there's a clear lack of awareness and understanding of um, where do you send someone that can't see very well that needs help and support, not just with their eye care, but with their mental health, with their social yeah. aspects of life. Because once they're diagnosed with a condition, it's all well and good to say, oh, you've got glaucoma, but that doesn't really help the patient, you know? Yeah. It doesn't really help the patient to know what their pathology is. It helps the patient to know, how do I get a job? How do I live in this world that is designed for people that can see? Mm-hmm. Um, how do I get out and about without tripping? You know, how do I do all of this this stuff that life is is for? Mm-hmm. And um, I think so. For me, it became a reality check that actually we need to empower the whole profession. Um, we managed to be successful in securing some funding from Thomas Popplington Trust, who mm-hmm. uh, managed to give us the money to do a roadshow to train over five thousand optoms and DOs about um, visual impairment on the CMB on the Eyes Roadshow um, and upskill people. Um, and then unfortunately that money sort of come to an end. Um, but you know, we still are, we still want, would like to train every single professional to make them realize. And, and I think the other thing is that a lot of the professionals have never ever had a patient talk to them. I yeah. think professionals are very good at dictating to patients but they're not necessarily that good at listening to patients dictate to them. Yeah. And I think that's where it's been a very game-changing moment, you know, in, in mm-hmm. what we've achieved is that Definitely. when I speak to professionals, they've never had a patient talk to them. And I think that's, there's a lot of flaws in the system mm-hmm. in the way that the training is done. And I think that low vision is not seen as a sexy subject. Um, and I think it needs to be more so, especially as we have an Asian population and more people, yeah. you know, losing their vision. Um, and I think that there needs to be a lot more done around this and it needs to be taken a lot more seriously and it needs to be part of the core learning within um, universities as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that universities could do a lot more around this um, subject so that people do come out knowing all of these things. So they do mm-hmm. link in with the local services, they do visit them and they do build those connections because ultimately 
there's going to be a lot more blind people coming through your doors. Yeah, definitely. I think I think like say when when we mentioned with, with uh, J Street previously that in terms of learning about low vision from maybe from an opt-on perspective they learn pathology they learn about yeah. understanding the signs and the symptoms and, and the diagnosis of it uh, and from a dispensing yeah. optician's point of view we learn about about low vision aids uh, the different functions of low vision aids and stuff like that um but again it is that whole support side of it that that we're all lacking really um yeah one of the things we've tried to do with our low vision workshops is to broach the subject of mental health for low vision patients and obviously listening yeah. listen to your own personal experiences as well just sort of brings home that point as well. So, I mean, obviously you, you suffered with, with, with mental health issues yourself as you were finding out that how it was going to affect your life. So what kind of emotions do people go through during that period? What, what is the biggest sort of fear? Is there any kind of, you know, anything? Yeah, I think there's, I think there's definitely, a, it's like when you lose somebody, you're effectively losing your sight. So it's like you're losing somebody. So everybody's gone through a bereavement in their, mm -hmm. in their life. So they go through grief, they go through loss. Um, but how I always describe it is you can't get to acceptance unless you've had the correct support to get to that next level. So whether you need counseling, you need to talk to other people that have gone through a similar experience mm -hmm. um, just to find that acceptance. And I think that's where the link is not necessarily linking up because people can't get to acceptance if, they never, if they've never met the local charity or the national yeah. charity, you know? Um, or they've never met someone with sight loss to have actually share their experiences and they don't feel like they're the only one in the world that has sight loss. So I think there's there's a massive thing around peer support and realizing you're not the only one out there that has this and other people and, and like you said about life hacks, you know, learning from other people about their life hacks. Yeah. Um, I think that's really important. That's what I learned at the college that, you know, lots of different life hacks of what you can do to just make your life so much easier. The amount of technology that's out there, how an iPhone can talk to you, how you can magnify yeah. on an iPhone that you wouldn't necessarily know unless you're linked up with services to, 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 to you know, you know, just because you come become blind, you don't, you don't all of a sudden become an expert in, in blindness. You don't, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think, I think the other thing that we found on the roadshow is a couple of different things. One thing is that we are into, we are into apps. We do promote apps mm. and technology. The amount of new tech that's out there to help people with vision impairments is, is amazing. Yeah. And it's increasing. Um, but as eye care professionals, we need to be able to help, that happen to help that grow and, and, and look into what's available and not be scared because we don't have the knowledge because people are willing to help us with that side of things. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that people do think the low vision is to do with old people, okay, and that's not the case. There's, there's a huge wealth of working age people who, who with impairments who are out there, but we, we're not recognising them. We're not we're not employing them. We're not looking after them, mm -hmm. and that's something that needs you know uh, thinking about because you know people that have a vision impairment might think they're going to lose the job. Okay, and if they don't get the support, they will just that will be the situation, and that's not acceptable, really. No, definitely. Um, so part of part of the piece is also talking about uh, the government grants and uh, access to work, and, and and you know empowering your patients and saying no, actually there is help out there. You have to talk to your employer in the right way and say that actually this is this is to do with the disability act, uh, act and you know this is something that needs uh, acting on, and mm -hmm. and it's having that knowledge and making sure that you can get in, you can have empathy for that person and recognizing that that's that's important. In terms of the counselling, RNIB and Macro Society both have uh, counselling services, so it's important that we know that those counselling services are there and we catch people early. The important thing is to signpost people as, as you do the referral for the ophthalmologist. Why would you not do the referral to the sight loss charity, yeah. to the eye clinic liaison officer, to these people? Because that's the important thing, that they get the support as early as possible. And also, 
with the roadshow, it's multidisciplinary learning. You know, we've had, I think liaison officers, rehabilitation officers, people from social services, we've had a GP come, we had a pharmacist come, uh, ophthalmologists, ophthalmic nurses, uh, uh, diabetic screeners. So it's about multidisciplinary learning, because as Dan says, that the hacks can come from anywhere and anybody, and that's the important yeah. learning that we need to share. Yeah, and I think the other thing to add to that is that people, um, you know, they may present with early onset glaucoma or early onset AMD or early onset RP or whatever the condition may be. And people are not necessarily flagging them up until their VA has become really, really bad. Actually, it's not good. It's better to do it when they're when at the end of the day, if they can't no longer drive anymore. Mm -hmm. They are effectively a low vision patient. I think it's about looking outside the box. Yeah. If, if you're telling someone they can no longer drive, that's going to have a massive emotional impact on their mental health. Um, you know, that, that affects their day-to-day -day activity and it makes them, it's they're going to struggle, right? So yeah. if they've got glaucoma and, and, and it's not, the professional sees it as, oh, well, it's not really that bad at the moment, that's your perception that it's not that bad at the moment. But for the patient, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're really, really struggling right now because they've gone from having vision to not having some level of vision. And I think we need to get... Really, don't get too hung up on the visual acuity and the field of vision. At the end of the day, that person just got yeah. diagnosed with an eye condition, regardless of what level they can see at, they struggle in some way, shape or form. And I think that's the bit that's also missed. It seems that people are not necessarily referred to any service or low vision service or anything until their vision seems to get to a point where yeah. it's perceived that it's bad. But it's about not putting your perception on the patient and looking at it from the patient perspective and seeing they do struggle, ask them questions, you know, mm -hmm. Are you struggling to read your letters? Are you are you when you're out and about? Do you trip and fall? You know, um, how's your how are you in your in yourself with your mental health situation? Mm -hmm. If you don't ask, then you're never going to know. But we can't assume that patients are just fine. And also recognize that not every patient is going to tell you mm. that they have mental health issues. But you you'll also see red flags. You know, because yeah. some patients will tell you, "Oh no, I'm really really fine." But you need to dive, delve into that more. Why, you know, maybe they're not fine, but they're telling you they're fine, and it's about exploring that in more in more ways than one. I think. Yeah, I think hopefully these days people are a bit more open about mental health, aren't they? There's certainly a lot more awareness, um, and I think people are more likely to to discuss their own sort of feelings a little bit more than they were even five, ten years ago. Um, but yeah, in t in terms of a diagnosis of a low vision condition, I think like I think Dan, like you said, it, it's not necessarily about their VAs, it's about how it's affecting their lives. Um, and I think for, from, a, from a practitioner point of view, to be, for someone to be considered or to be classified as low vision, it's, it's more about they have to not be able to see this, they have to hit that certain mm -hmm. VA point for that to be you know, a, a classified. But like say in the early stages of a condition, they're still gonna be going through that process and still gonna have those worries and those fears about how their vision and how their uh, condition is gonna progress really. So do you think with, with regards to sort of diagnosis and, and, and having that conversation with patients, do you think it comes from a point where it's, it's always, I mean, with, with a lot of referrals, for instance, it's not always the responsibility of the practitioner or the optometrist or the dispensing optician, predominantly the optometrist, to actually diagnose a condition. It's more they, they recognise signs of it, recognise symptoms of it and refer accordingly but it's not their position to actually say, you've got this condition. Yeah. 
So do you think that kind true, of... True, but that doesn't mean to say that, that, that um, you can't refer somebody on to the services generally. If you mm-hmm. know that that person is struggling, you can just say, um, yeah, yes, you, you know, you've got an appointment to see the ophthalmologist, but um, it might be useful to just take a look at these different websites to see, you know, if there's anything there mm-hmm. that can help you. Yeah. And, and also, we're talking about, again, we, we, we're not with, you know, yes, you might suspect they have glaucoma or suspect they have AMD and refer them on, that's, that's fine. But at this current time, you know that they've lost sight. They have sight loss. Whatever condition they have, they have lost some type of sight. Therefore, yeah. the local sight loss charity can help you, right? So it doesn't matter about their condition right now. It matters that they've lost some sight. The ophthalmologist can help diagnose, that's fine. But to move on with your life, the charity can help you because you've lost some sight, yeah? That's how, how we have to see it, really. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. So in terms of the process that you follow when you, when you get in t- touch with these charities and these support groups, um, from your own perspective, Dan, is it quite a straightforward process? Is it quite efficient and, and, and do things move quite quickly in terms of the support that you get? Yeah, definitely, I think so. So, you know, obviously every, every local area will have a local sight loss or blind association or charity that you know, practitioners should make themselves aware of. Um, then you also have the national charities like RNIB. The, um, you then have the um, and the Blind Children's Association. You then have, you know, your eye condition specific charities like Retina UK, Immaculate Society, um, Nystagmus Network. All of these type of charities um, that are crying out. You know, they're crying out for referrals. They want people to refer in, yeah. and they're there, ready and waiting for those patients. Um, I've recently just become a trustee for the Nystagmus Network. Um, okay. So, you know, we, we, we only have 500 members. Hmm. Um, and we know that one in 1,000 people have nystagmus. So we need wow. you guys to refer your nystagmus patients to us. Yeah. You know, that means that if there's one in 1,000 people that have nystagmus, why have we only got 500 members? That means they're all sat there, probably hmm. sat in front of you guys. Yeah. And we need them. Yeah. So it's really important that the patients are referred into the charities. And also, the more the, the more people that refer into charities, the more pressure that the more referrals they have, and we have, the more we can we can then get more funding. The yeah. more that we can then put more business cases together to say that we need more help and support, mm-hmm. um, and and we and also for statistics, you know, as well, which is really important. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think that's one thing that we tend to probably overlook in practice is the fact that you guys need these people coming to you, so you can get yeah. more funding, you can have more of an influence. When it comes to you know to recommending policy and changes in the workplace, changes to things like the disability act, all those kind of things need evidence, don't they? And, and exactly. And we up. we as uh, tr- in my sort of where my wear my trustee hat for my Stagnus network, we constantly hear from people with nystagmus saying mm-hmm. that you know they regularly go to their optometrist or their dispensing optician to get a pair of specs, mm-hmm. but they've never been told about services, and yeah, it's yeah. seen because they've got. A, again back to the visual acuity because they have such a generally people with nystagmus have quite good acuity yeah. they're not then picked up as low vision but you know when they're stressed when they're anxious when they're tired it's a variable condition yeah they yeah. still have some level of sight loss most of them cannot drive mm-hmm. um so therefore they need help and support you know they need personal independence payments so that they can get a taxi to go to the supermarket mm-hmm. you know they need a disabled rail card so that they can get discounts on their rail travel all of these things that people are struggling with, you know? Yeah, yeah. And we know that 43, about 43% of people with visual impairment have mental health issues. Um, and I just think that it's really, really important to encourage the whole profession to refer and also to encourage the whole profession to do a lot more around visual impairment and sight loss. I mean, 
all the practices that are out there as well. You know, like link charity of the year. You've got a site of charity of the year. Why, why could you not, um, you know, to raise money for your local site of charity? Go and the other thing is get optometrists or dispense opticians to go to their local charity and talk to their members. Mm-hmm. Talk about eye health and eye conditions, yeah. and then naturally those patients will probably come to your practice. So it also makes business sense as well, yeah. you know. Yeah. And those patients will bring their family back and their friends and everything. Yeah, definitely. I think Stuart, there's a big piece missing really uh, about um, sight loss charities and, and and the optical profession working together. And um, you know, really the important thing is that sometimes a lot of us will have the the money box in our in our practice, right? You know, mm-hmm. we've got the money box and we. But you know, people do a repair and then we do the repair for them and they'll put the money in the box and oh that's great you're supposed to. but actually they don't know what the charity does what does the charity offer okay uh, they don't know where the charity is they don't know if there's a car park nearby they don't know if it's easily you know easily accessible or mm-hmm. signposted and if you don't know what the charity does then really you're missing a trick the important thing is to know what the local title of charity does see how you can help them share their uh, you know their events and, and support them, and because that will make a, a massive difference to them and you overall. You know the the, the links they have rooms which you could uh, you could hire for your, for, for the LOC meetings yeah. or other meetings that you might have. It's about it's about working in a collaborative fashion, okay. And overall, it will make a difference to to your practice and to the community because at the end of the day, that's where that's where your patients are. Yeah. They're in the community. Yeah, right? definitely, definitely. So the link has to be done, and uh, you know, in this cu- in this current situation, it's difficult enough. But um, I think you have to think a bit wider and, and look look at you know a bit broader picture of what's going on. Uh, you know, sight loss charities at the moment are under huge pressure. The normal stuff that they were doing, which is you know the sponsored walk and the and the and the tea and the coffee moment, that, that's all gone. So where are they getting their funding? Yeah. Um, they they need help. And, and we should be there for them because at the end of the day, you know, that's that's the important thing to reach out. Yeah, and I think just to echo that, that in this current COVID situation, all of these charities, I mean, my charity, my Sagan's Network, we're, we're struggling for cash, you know, um, and, and, and it does have a massive knock-on effect. And again, you know, when we get, when, when all of this is over, it's really important that local, um, local optical committees, local CET providers, you know, reach out to their local tr- sight loss charities, use their training rooms, put money into their into those services. Because rather than putting money into hotels and, and conference centres, you know, you've yeah. got a local sight loss charity that needs needs effectively business and needs your money. You know, to help them sustain. Because if they all go, you know, where's blind people going to go at the end of the day for help and support? So I think that you know, everyone, I care professionals need, could do a lot more in that space as well to help the sight loss economy. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think we again, it's something that we're probably not aware of or don't really consider is that there yeah. is this whole sort of um, sort of micro economy within that within those charities that do need funding. They do need they do need business essentially, and they need donations. They need people to be interacting with them, you know, to be able yeah. to keep their, those um, those support going. Really, um, we we did an event last year at um, the Queen Elizabeth College in Birmingham, which is a mm-hmm. disabled college. Um, and they're linked up with Focus Birmingham, who provide low vision aids for Correct, people yeah. in the Birmingham area. Yeah. Um, my my nan had wet AMD, um, so she 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 had quite severe sight loss towards the end of her oh. years. But she had so much help and support from Focus; they were fantastic with her um, in terms of low vision aids and just general support and help. It was it was fantastic. So these charities do such amazing work; they do need to be supported 
by the profession. Certainly by mm -hmm. the profession, definitely. So, and I think the other thing to add to that is like leaflets as well. So, yeah. you know, when when patients are sat in the waiting room just waiting for the clinician, you know, have leaflets in your practice of, of services as well so that patients can actually have a look at the leaflets and see what services yeah. are available to them, whether it's the, the mum, the dad, the family mm -hmm. member that's sat there, yeah. you know, wondering what help my mum or dad can get, then, you know, the, the leaflets need to be there as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's an important thing to remember as well is that when, when you're considering a low vision patient, it's not just the patient's life who's going to be affected. They have a yeah. support network, they have family who, who maybe look after them, care for them, whether they're younger or older. So mm -hmm. that whole net support system needs to be aware, needs to be understanding of the situation of what their um, family member is actually going through with their sight loss and how, mm -hmm. how to support them. I think, Stuart, the, the thing is that we need to think more, more sort of openly and think about eye health, right? Mm -hmm. People think of opticians as people that, you know, test your eyes and give you glasses, yeah. give you expensive glasses, and that's what it's all about. And actually, eye health should be the prime yeah. sort of uh, feature of what we do, you know. And if you have a person that, that comes in for the diabetes, you know, uh, has a test for diabetes and comes in every 12, 12 months, then the person coming with them also should be flagged up and say, okay, you know, how about you as a family member? Uh, similarly with glaucoma. Because we're not really, you know, that, yes, we see these people, but... But equally, we should be thinking a little bit more, you know, sort of openly about those sorts of things. If we can project eye health more, I think we, we stand a better chance all round. Yeah. And also, people with low vision actually think that they don't need to go back to the optician. They've got low vision, they don't need to go back. Yeah. And actually, if you did a talk at the charity to, to uh, the members, they might realise that they do need to go back for the eye examination with the optometrist because, you know, they may have another condition happening. It may be mm -hmm. this early signs of diabetes on top yeah. of whatever they've got. Yeah. Uh, and that's yeah. a message that we really need to push forward to, to people because they just think, oh, that's it, I've got low vision, I've been referred to the ophthalmologist, he said I've got glaucoma, she said I've got AMD, yeah. that's it, I don't mm -hmm. need to go back. And that's a really important message that we need to engage with. Also, you know, if that person comes back to you, maybe there isn't anything that can be done with the vision as such, but they're, they're, there's, you can tell them about gene therapy that's happening, you know, advances that are going on, mm -hmm. you can tell them about some new tech that's going on or a new service yeah. that's opened. All these things are important and touch, touch it's basically touch points where you can keep them engaged and supported and they feel that actually, yeah, just because I can't see, they're not looking after me. Yeah. It has yeah. to be a holistic approach, really, and you have to give people a chance to come back, but also encourage them. They shouldn't feel like, oh, that's it, I'm not going to go back because actually they're not going to get anything in this so why should I go back? Mm. Yeah. And also, we want the, you know, what about the cool sunglasses, you know? We don't all want frumpy sunglasses as well. We want <laughs> decent sunglasses. So tell us about those as yeah. well. Tell us about the tints that you can offer us. Yeah, um, definitely. And, you know, and, and, and don't necessarily just think that a low vision patient isn't going to spend money in your practice as well because people will spend money. I mean, in Germany, you know, they have low vision aids, video magnifiers all in the window. Mm -hmm. You know, they have magnifiers in the window. Be loud and proud about it. I don't, sometimes it seems that, I've spoken to a few optometrists that may have maybe a few magnifiers in the drawer yeah. or a few leaflets yeah. in the drawer. Why are they in the drawer? Why are we hiding blindness? You know, we mm -hmm. don't need to hide it. It's the reality of what we're dealing with. Yeah, definitely. And even if you're not selling those low vision aids yourself, if you can at least yeah. speak to the patient and if they can source them through a charity, then mm -hmm. let them come back to you and, and you can show them how to use it. You can support them in yeah. getting the best out of it as well. Um, exactly. But again, another thing that's often overlooked with low vision is, is the importance of refraction and the mm. need to actually have the best available vision that they can have to get the best out of whatever low vision aid they're using. So that can often be, you know, uh, overlooked in that sense as well. 
yeah. I think resources is an important thing, as you say, generally, and and the 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 uh, roadshow uh, is accompanied by a resource pack that's available uh, from the website Visualize mm -hmm. Training Consultancy, and that resource pack really what we try to do with that is try and sort of say to people how this work. You know, it's all well and good saying look at the local charity, look at the national charity. So it's all been put together in one pack, and the idea is that you can fill out your local eye clinic liaison officer, mm -hmm. your local sight loss charity, and your local sensory, you know, social services lead, okay? And then and the, the, all the uh, sight loss charities, national and local, uh, national on the link, and also um, the condition-specific charities. So mm -hmm. it's all in one, one pack, and it's easy to use, and it's a good reference guide sort of thing as well. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think it's, to have one point of contact there, you can recommend someone to go and then they can sort of follow on from that is, is a nice and simple way to get the message out there isn't it as well if you give someone a list of phone numbers and a list of websites to click on it you know they, they might click on some but not others but if you give them that one central point of information that they can then sort of cascade through that that you know yeah. that can definitely be helpful and I, and I think the other thing to add is that we're not we're not our expected practitioners to you know, it doesn't have to take loads of your time. We don't expect you all to be experts in low vision. What we do expect is that people just refer. I mean, you know, pick up the phone and, and just ring a charity, the local charity and just say, you know, I've got uh, Mr. Smith and he has glo uh, glaucoma. He's struggling. Can you help him? You know, that's going to take two minutes of your time. Um, so for all the people out there that are sort of thinking, actually, I don't have time to do that, mm -hmm. um, you know, it doesn't take much time. And if you want to delegate that role to the receptionist, I mean, they can do that. The optical yeah, assistant, yeah, you know, yeah. the yeah. main thing is, is that the patient gets help and support. Yeah, definitely, definitely. There's a there's a website, Stuart, uh, which is um, uh, www.siteadvicefaq. Siteadvicefaq.org.uk, mm -hmm. and that's. Um, that's advice that basically um, it answers questions about living with sight loss um, and uh, especially with the COVID situation at the moment. Yeah. So hopefully that might help as well. Yeah, definitely. What we'll do is I'll, I'll get a list of websites and stuff off you guys and I'll put them all in the video as well. So and in the comments so people can can access those as well, because it is, it is really useful information for people to have. Um, and obviously with the packs that you guys do as well, that's something that every practice should have access to. Definitely, definitely. So, so Dan, thinking about um, technology, obviously we've touched on various sort of, you know, the different technology out there, but there's a lot of stuff that people have already got access to that they can use, um, such as a smartphone. So, so what advice would you give people about that kind of stuff? Um, yeah, so again, if most smartphones, if you go on the settings and you go to accessibility, um, it will, you know, there's lots of things on there. So you can magnify the screen, you can get the phone to talk back to you. Um, so just have a play around with your with your phones and have a look at the accessibility fun functions on it, and you'll be amazed at all the stuff that it can actually do. And again, that's just a quick win that you can tell a patient um, mm -hmm. as uh, as well. Not just a patient, but I think a colleague as well, because I've I've had um, after meeting about five thousand professionals in the eye care sector. There's a lot of there's a lot of you guys out there that also don't see so well yourselves, mm -hmm. and I think just to shout out to you guys to be loud and proud and tell your employers that you can't see very well also because don't sit there in silence and think that you have to struggle on when the employer has to make adjustments for you, um, and I think that's really important to to flag up that we talk about low vision patients, but you've also got low vision staff, mm -hmm. and I think to recognise that and to make sure that the adjustments are in place for the staff as well and the profession. 
Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think that that's something that we'd expect for any disability, isn't it, really? We'd always yeah. expect those yeah. reasonable adjustments to be made. Um, but I think with some, with some disabilities, it's easier for an employer to recognise that that person has that certain disability mm. because it is a more physical, uh, you know, there's more physical signs presented. Whereas with, yeah. with, if you've got a visual field loss or if you've got, you know, reduced visual acuity, it's hard yeah. for your employer to know that that's an issue unless you tell them, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's a hidden disability, you're right, mm. Stuart, yes. Yeah, Yeah, definitely, definitely. So one other thing I wanted to ask you about, Dan, is is your best friend, Zodiac. So, because yeah. he he gets quite a lot of uh, attention, doesn't he, whenever you take him out and about on the road shows and stuff. So yeah. how how long has, uh, has Zodiac been, been with you? Yeah, so I've had Zodiac, my guide dog, for two years now. Um, and, you know, he just really changed my life in terms of, my speed is probably quadrupled. Hmm. Um, I'm a lot quicker. We don't take any hostages. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we, you know, it, it's amazing how I don't have to worry about bumping into a lamppost. I mean, when you bump into mm-hmm. so many lampposts, you realize that you can't see you and you need, you need a cane or a dog, yeah. you know? And um, it just allowed me to just have a bit more freedom and not need to worry about bumping into things or bumping into people. And before that, I used to use, I didn't use a cane or a dog. And I used to, when I was walking around, I used to, you know, do the dance with people when you try, they move left and then yeah. they, you move left and all this type of stuff. Um, and if you've ever come across that situation, you know, when people do that, you probably, you probably never thought that actually maybe they don't see very well. But yeah. I think a lot of people, when they move left and you, you move left, that's what actually what I used to do all the time because, you know, trying to avoid people, maybe, and then looking down at the floor a lot more because... Mm. You know, you're not seeing properly. And to other people, they probably just think, oh, you know, you're dodgy or you're a bit odd. But actually, you recognise that some people are out there that also don't use anything and that, yeah. you know, have a hidden disability and they don't see very well. But in terms of um, having a guide dog, yeah, it's really changed my life. It's made me um, a lot quicker. And just, um, he, he, he's amazing. Just an amazing, um, amazing animal. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And was it, was it quite an easy process to adapt to using a guide dog? Was it, did it take a lot of time to, you know, understand how to, you know, how to tell the dog what to do or, you know, how, how does it actually, from the, from the point that you receive the dog, what's the process? Yeah, so I, I, had, I had to wait about two years to get one. Mm-hmm. Um, they match you up based on your lifestyle. So if you're, right. if you're traveling all around the country, for example, hello? Yeah, we can hear yeah. you. If you're traveling, if you're traveling all around all the country, for example, they need a dog that can deal with that amount of work. Right. Um, okay. They match you up based on, um, you know, your speed, so how quick you walk. Um, and so, if you're just going from A to B, the shop to home, then obviously you need a dog that can just do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, li- I live in Cardiff currently, um, but my dog has come from London because right. I work across the UK, and the dog um, can do the the underground in London. Okay. Um, so I had to have a dog that come from London so he could do the escalators on the underground. Wow. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very, uh, quite a full-on process in terms mm-hmm. of what they do behind the scenes to match people with the dog. Um, and then it, it take, then we have 10 days training with the dog to understand mm-hmm. the commands, understand sort of general dog etiquette, like uh, grooming and mm-hmm. communicating with the dog to tell the dog left or right. Um, what will happen is the dog will go, it will navigate all the people. It will then sit at the curb. Yeah. Um, and you have to decide whether it's safe to cross the road or not. A lot of people mm-hmm. think that the dog is going to tell you when to cross the road. 
Um, but you have to decide that by using your residual vision, by using your hearing, um, or by asking someone in the public, or by pressing the button on the, the crossing. Yeah. So, you know, um, and, and then it will just navigate all the people and just take that headache from you to try and navigate obstacles and that mm -hmm. type of thing. Um, and then you can just sort of flow gently, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting to, to understand that they have to get a dog that can adapt to your lifestyle. And like I say, having to get mm. a dog from London that's already trained to use escalators and stuff like that. Um, I think I think a lot of us just feel like it's it's almost like a one size fits all with, with a guide dog. But yeah, no, definitely. And also, you can choose the 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 gender, the mm -hmm. the color of the dog as well. Um, so, for example, I, I I wanted a black dog because I I wear a lot of suits. Yeah. Uh, I didn't want, you know, hair on my suits and that type of stuff. So, but then other people might not be bothered, you know, so yeah, there's yeah. a lot that goes into the planning of, of actually yeah. getting matched with a dog. That's why it sometimes takes a bit longer. Um, but equally, they're a charity as well that mm -hmm. struggles. There's only 5,000 guide dogs in the UK that are in right. service, you know? Yeah, um, Dan, I was just going to ask you, how much is it to train a guide dog over its lifetime? Yeah, so it you costs about, about £50,000 uh, for training, so from birth to death, effectively, yeah. um, to have a dog, guide dog. Mm. Um, and also, the other thing is, is that we are protected under the Equality Act. So where organisations or practices have a no-dog policy, mm -hmm. um, that, that means that you have to make a reasonable adjustment to allow assistance dogs in. And I have heard stories of opticians that have refused um, guide dogs. So... It's just to make you aware that actually that that is illegal and it's actually yeah. disability discrimination and you are liable to be sued if you if you do do that. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I think I, I've worked in a practice where there was a couple who used to train uh, guide dog puppies. They used to sort of foster them, you know, they mm -hmm. go for like a, yeah. a, a breaking in process, don't they, just to get used to people. Um, but they were always welcome in practice when I was in. I couldn't, I couldn't wait for them to come over so I could have a little, have a little stroke. So, yeah. And, and I think, yeah, and just touching upon the stroking. So, like, when the harness is on, the dog knows that it's, it's working. Yeah. When the harness is off, the dog sort of knows that it's not working. Um, and it's just it's just really common uh, etiquette, really, to ask the owner, is it okay to stroke the dog rather yeah. than assume it's okay to stroke the dog? Because I get a lot of people that will just come up and stroke the dog and they don't communicate with you at all and they just then they walk off so yeah, they yeah. Like i call them the sneaky strokers yeah. <laughs> um, because it's like they perceive that you can't see anything at all yeah. so they have this little cheeky stroke and then uh, go about their business so yeah yeah definitely so, so just ask the main thing is ask and then if you don't ask you don't know and and to assume makes an ass out of me and you it certainly does it certainly does yeah definitely but yeah, we, but we love Zodiac. It's, it's great to see him out and about all the, uh, all the optical conferences and stuff it, like he's, that. I mean, Zodiac, Stuart, is a real star of the show. He's, he's, yeah. he's yeah. an amazing you know, person in that, in that scenario and the team because yeah. he, he connects with so many different people. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and he's, he's naughty. He can be naughty. You know, yeah. he's, he's done naughty things on the road show. You know, we're, we're talking or whatever and you'll sneak under the curtain. People are asking you're sort of, you know, you're trying to get people's attention. You're wondering what the hell's going on. Somebody's laughing at you when you're so super serious uh, and, and he's so yeah and he seems to get more strokes than i do which is a bit unfair wow it's a tough competition <laughs> isn't it really <laughs> so what what's the, what's the plans for you guys coming up then what, what's on the agenda for, for 2020 um so for 2020 the, vision, the year of vision <laughs> and the year of covid it looks like so um it's we we want to we're going to do a webinar in the next uh, month called covid eyes okay 
um, which is going to be by um, a consultant ophthalmologist talking about um, how to how patients what support patients need to receive in this situation. Mm-hmm. Um, we also plan to do a seeing beyond the eyes webinar um, just to um, make people you know to make to yeah to make the profession more aware of visual impairment. Yeah. Um, and then we hopefully intend to be back on the road. Um, doing some other seeing beyond the eye sessions once all of this is over. Um, but again, we, the slight issues that we have is that, um, you know, we don't have, we don't have funding effectively. So if there's anyone out there that can fund us or get us back on the road, that would also be appreciated. Yeah, definitely. So any, if any suppliers out there or anyone else wants to support the guys, then it's definitely a worthwhile, worthwhile thing to do. Uh, cause it, I mean, the, the shows are really well attended, aren't they? Um, and, and we, we've always hear a lot of positive feedback um, from the people at our shows about, about your events as well, Dan. Um, whenever oh, right, we, right. It, it's always funny when, when we do sort of low vision workshops and people mention that they've been to one of yours and they go, yeah. and they go oh, I, sh- I, shouldn't, I shouldn't mention the competition, should I? And I'm like, it's not, it's not like we're not in competition with each other. We know each other, we're friendly, you know, it's all good. And whatever we can do yeah, to yeah. support each other, we always try and do that, we say. No, yeah, you know, never sort of see it. a small profession anyway. Yeah, it's, definitely. It's quite, definitely. People know each other quite well, so I think like in that sense, you can't. Yeah. You know, that that's just the lay of the land, and that's the way it is. Definitely. Yeah, and we and that's all we really do. We just do visual impairment therapy, really. So. Yeah, yeah. But like I said, the feedback we've had. I mean, I, I've I've sat in a couple of sessions. I found it really thought provoking and interesting, uh, and it certainly yeah. gave me things to take away into practice and, and and information that I can speak to low vision patients about. And it's also given me a lot of talking points that when I'm doing low vision lectures, I refer back to some of the stuff that you've recommended. And, and I always recommend yeah. that people you know, go to your website and, and check out the list of links and support groups on there. So there's definitely been yeah. a lot that professionals can, can gain from, from attending one of your workshops. So they definitely are highly recommended. And like I said, a lot right. of the feedback we Thank get you. is that everyone I've spoke to that's been on to one of your courses has always enjoyed it and found it you know, yeah. very worthwhile. So. No, you're doing a great job. So, yeah, it's great to have you. Yeah, and I think the other thing is, we're all learning, aren't we? We're all, every CET workshop any of us does, we're all learning something new will come up, something we haven't come across, you know, and so for for us, that's that's the joy of being a CET facilitator, certainly for me, that, you know, you're learning all the time and that that has to continue, you know. Yeah, definitely. Um, So that's why it's fun and that's why we do it. Yeah, definitely. And we try also to get patients um, on our our sessions and also... um, sight loss professionals so that people can start interacting with individuals and building emotional connections which I think is really important yeah definitely definitely like I say it's not just the patient it's the whole support network and and it is community uh, that, that communication piece that's that's the most important thing in all of this isn't it really that's the one thing we have to yeah. take away from it all so especially in the year of vision as well you know I yeah. think it's about <laughs> the sight loss sector and the eye care sector can in my mind are miles apart and I think yeah it's about time we work better together for the ultimate benefit and it and I think it, whilst it will benefit your patients, whilst it will benefit your patients, it will also benefit your business as well, yeah. you know? Yeah, definitely, 100%. Yeah, definitely. And like I say, we, unfortunately, in optics, in practice, we rely on the sale of specs, don't we? Because the, you know, the sight tests, mm. we, can't, we can't rely on sight tests and MEX appointments. We wouldn't be able to afford to stay open. So yeah. anything you can do to provide a service for someone that keeps them coming back in, and then that's... Good, good PR. They'll bring their family in, their friends in, and it just builds your business. Yeah. Way. So you've got. To look and also, you know, some of these, some of these video magnifiers are like two, three thousand pound. I mean, mm-hmm. 
you know, in my mind, there's a there's a massive trick business trick miss there as well. You know, if you if you've got if you're business savvy, then get selling some of this kit as well. You know. Yeah, definitely. definitely. I think I think we should, we get hung up with prices and things like that. It's about mm-hmm. building relationships. That's the key driver because yeah. that builds loyalty, and then you know therein lies lies the the heart of any good business. You know, if people trust you. Uh, with with the information, with the support, then that that hopefully will keep them locked into your practice. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And we want to build the kind of reputation for optics and optical professionals as being trustworthy, as being people who are healthcare providers rather than just yeah. retailers. So delving into that kind of stuff Absolutely. will make a big difference, definitely. So I think we've literally just hit the time limit for today. So um, thanks, thank you both for coming on. It's been really interesting talking to you both. Um, like I say, the, the work that you're both doing is fantastic. I think, Dan, you're an inspiration. Um, so just keep up the good work, really. Um, yeah, thank you. Like I say, I'll, I'll put some links in the video and stuff like that, so I'll get all the websites up and everything. But if you haven't been to a scene Beyond the Eyes roadshow, then it's definitely something you should have a look into because it is, it is. Thanks amazing. for inviting us, so, Stuart. You're welcome. Thanks for coming up. And thanks for everyone for watching. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. See ya. Bye. Bye.